0: Hello, everyone. Welcome back. Happy New Year. All right. So as uh, Tony said, I'm Emma Cox with McDonald's. Um, My two co-chairs, Kurt Carnatz and Rob Weatherald, are sitting over there. Um, I'd like to thank them as well as the Programs Committee for helping putting on today's program. So today, I have the privilege of introducing three very innovative thinkers in not only the world of corporate real estate, but also well-being and human flourishing. Um, But before I do that, I wanted to give a little bit of context. Um, A lot of you uh, may know that this program is typically the program that features Um, the economic forecast um, for 2018, and maybe some of you walked in the door today thinking that's what you were going to get. (laughs) Um, I hope you'll be pleasantly surprised. We're mixing it up a little bit today. So uh, while we do find that helpful and and a valuable program, we wanted to give you um, a, a different kind of predictive view outside of the economy for 2018. So we think that today's program will give you some good ideas and hopefully inspiration for you to take uh, into 2018 and beyond. So I know all of these three speakers um, in a different capacity, um, but we've all come together through Rex. And Rex is, uh, Rex is a distinguished and award-winning author and uh, futurist. I love that term and title. I want to have that. <laughs> Within the workplace strategy industry. And Brian uh, Bertold was actually my former boss. And Steve and I met through the group that Rex, Rex runs called MindShift, um, where subject matter experts come together and share ideas to create industry thought leadership concepts. Brian, Steve, and I have had the pleasure of attending multiple MindShift events that have left us feeling very inspired and a part of something greater. So thank you, Rex, for that. Um, So without further ado, I will briefly introduce the speakers for today. Uh, You have more detailed bios on your tables. So Rex Miller, as I mentioned, is an internationally award-winning author, uh, respected futurist and elite coach, and compelling keynote speaker, which you'll see today. His mind shift process brings a unique crowdsourced approach to tackling complex leadership challenges. In partnership with Hayworth, this process has won both the Cornet Global Innovators Award, as well as the Industry Excellence Award. Rex recently completed a two-year project with more than 100 experts, owners, and leaders to find out why 95% of wellness efforts fail and how healthy buildings change architecture and healthy cultures provides a clear strategy to health and well-being. The Healthy Workplace Nudge, which is the name of his new book, will be released in May of this year. Congratulations, Rex. You may have heard of of Rex's other books, The Commercial Real Estate Revolution, produced in partnership with Hayworth, Change Your Space, Change Your Culture, and Humanizing the Education Machine. If you haven't heard of these, please do check them out. Uh, Steve Carter partners with organizational leaders from all sorts of organizations to help them realize the greatest possible value from relocation. He treats relocation for what it is, a profound organizational change event. Viewed from that perspective, relocation presents a rare opportunity for leaders to revitalize shared belief systems held by employees, the outcome of which is a change in leadership approach and culture. Steve's company, Carter Inc, has the philosophy that any sustainably successful change event must be people-centric. Strategies and methodologies applied to relocation must have a human scale in order to beneficially impact employees and shape their view of organizations' missions, leadership, and future value. Steve recently achieved his PhD from Benedictine University in values-driven leadership. Brian Bertold is the Managing Director of Workplace Strategies within Cushman and Wakefield's strategic consulting practice. Brian partners with Cushman and Wakefield clients and leads the Workplace Strategies practice. Brian's, t- Brian's team has launched Experience Per Square Foot, the industry's first diagnostic tool that can measure the workplace experience and help clients identify and invest in the drivers of those experiences. Improving workplace experiences focuses on cultural alignment, client and employee experience, workplace strategy, technology strategy, sustainable designs, health and wellness strategies, location, change management, and service strategy. He'll talk more about that during today's presentation. Prior to joining Cushman Wakefield, Brian was the Senior Vice President and of Corporate Real Estate and Workplace at SunTrust Bank in Atlanta, where he rolled out their first alternative workplace program and co-working space. He began his career as an architect and as an industry leader in the workplace strategy change management and the alignment of business and real estate strategies. Brian sits on the Atlanta Cornet board and is very involved with the Cornet organization as a whole. Can you believe those were summarized bios? (laughs) Please join me in welcoming our speakers today.
1: Testing one, two, three. All right, excellent. What a great turnout and energy in this place. Um, And fortunately it's not last week, um, because I heard about the weather here last week. Uh, This is my hometown, I grew up in Arlington Heights. I was able to get up here and take Dad out to uh, lunch yesterday at his favorite little restaurant called Burger Baron, where he got his BLT, his French fries, and his strawberry shake. So it's it's great to come up here, and it's great to see a lot of friends. And uh, like Emma said, this is not the typical economic forecasting, but I do start with two charts, just so those of you who wanted to see a chart... I've got a few of those. And you know, and we'll talk about that the arrow is going up here and the arrow is going down there. And that's what the charts typically tell you. Uh, in terms of forecasting, I am a futurist by degree. They call it strategic foresight. So that's my undergrad at the University of Illinois and my master's. Uh, so I do work in that area. And what I can tell you is nobody has a clue on what the future is going to hold. Uh, and uh, what we do know is that with the new tax law, that a lot of manufacturing has already begun investing. Have you started seeing that manufacturers are already starting to uh, plan capital projects around that? So you should be looking. But the leading indicator is really the bond market right now. Um, and there are a lot of triggers that could cause this whole thing to crash overnight. Our debt servicing, an international event. so. What we want to really talk about is how to future-proof. Because really, the strategy is, how do you make your organization resilient to the unpredictable event? How many have had an unpredictable event happen? To you personally? Right, yeah. Um, And so if you have margin, or buffer, or whatever you want to call it, uh, you can weather that. I call them social airbags, you know, what are the airbags in your organization? And what we're finding more and more is that the resiliency of an organization is directly tied to resiliency of the people in the organization. And right now that sucks for most people. How many feel a little bit running a little fast and heavy and hard and at the end of the day? How many are getting more than six hours of sleep a night? Okay. All right. How many are getting less than six hours of sleep a night? Okay, look at that. So you're legally drunk when you go to work. I just want you to know that. Seriously. Getting less than six hours of sleep, so now we're moving into the wellness conversation. So Cummins Diesel, for example, they make sure that their supervisors realize that if somebody comes in with less than five hours of sleep, now that doesn't even count the quality of sleep, because you can be in bed, but you're, how many have your mind still on when you're in bed? Okay, so we did research on all that and on performance and recovery at work. But the frontline managers at Cummins know that if somebody comes in, they're a safety risk if they're running a forklift and they have less than five hours of good sleep at night. Okay? These are realities. So we're just now waking up and understanding these implications are coming into the workplace. And that's why I'm excited to be here with both Brian and Steve, because we, we came together to research what is the future? You know, How do we build resilient, healthy, vital organizations uh, that survive, and, you know, Brian's work, one of the things we don't have a good measure for is how do you, what are the leading indicators and how do you measure that and tie it to organizational performance, and because we don't have those in place, we default to the spreadsheet, which is lowering the cost, so we look at the bottom right-hand number, and we say, oh, that number's got to be lower, no tie-in to the human side of it, and then Steve, you know, I, I've known Steve for a while, and what I appreciate about him, and I've never met a move management organization that begins with psychology and culture as their premise. And I said, well, I got to have this guy involved. And then he goes and gets his doctorates in the middle of it, uh, which is not an easy, you know, to be involved in our research, to get a doctorate, and then and then to also participate, run a business. That's not an easy thing. So you've got some really high-powered people here. So let's start with the first graph. How many have seen this graph before? It's the the life expectancy of an S&P 500 company. Since 1960. In 1960, that life expectancy was 60 years. Today, it's 15 years. Um, We just saw what happened to Whole Foods last year. They only made it 12 years. Once they made the S&P 500, they only made it 12 years before they disappeared. And we're going to see more of that. You've already seen what Walgreens has done because Amazon announced they're getting into the prescription business. So you watch Aetna and Cigna, uh, or uh, who, CBS. Aetna, CVS, Walgreens, uh, Rite Aid. So they're all trying to get defense to this and it's gonna be even hard with, with their strong position. So we see this volatility in the marketplace and this lifespan expectancy, and what we see is that's directly tied to engagement numbers uh, always always a, a surprise. Uh, so engagement numbers are thirty percent. That means seventy percent of people would rather be anyplace else than at work, and that's why you're all here today. Uh, <laughs> so seventy percent so how do you how do you overcome the volatilities if 70% of your people are checked out? 50% are just going through the motion, and 20%, you're better off paying to stay home than to come to work because of their toxic effect, and you know who those people are, right? So here's another person. This is Dr. Roy's in Cleveland Clinic. He was the first guy I met. So when we got involved in this research, and here's the significant thing. In 2013... Uh, CBRE's LA headquarters became the first well-certified corporate space. Now that may not sound like much, but it was the first time in history that corporate real estate jumped into the wellness game for real and collided with human resources. It's also the first time that medical science and building science came together to say, what does a healthy building look like? And in four years, we've learned a lot. Uh, DPR just created their space in Virginia. It's so less than a 1% increase in investment to create a well, a well building. Less than 1%. But what we found when we got involved in the research, we said, whoa, what's going on here? Um, there's all this response. They had 14,000 people come to see their space in the first year. And not so much just to see a great space, but to ask, how did you do this? And why did it transform your business model as well? And why did it improve your retention and your engagement? They wanted to know the story, and how did you get away with doing this with brokers, getting them, how many brokers do we have here? Okay, how many of you have 15 by 15 private offices with your picture of President Clinton on Mount Kilimanjaro and your silver shovels and stuff like that? Okay, I like to tease brokers. Uh, but I had a hard time believing they were willing to give all that up for a laptop. But the process they went through there, the journey, and, it, and so we wanted to understand, is there something happening here? Or is this just lightning in a bottle, one time event? So then we had to get to learn the wellness industry. And so this is Dr. Royson, chief wellness officer for the Cleveland Clinic. I spent two days with him and he scared the shit out of me. Um, And I said, oh my God, there's a burning platform. Nobody knows about this. So let me show you the graph. So here's the graph. The Congressional Budget Office says by 2050, the the bottom line is health costs are going to double, which means right now it's 18% of GDP. We'll be at 36% of GDP by 2050. Game over. Economy, social stability, game over. And so I'm sitting talking to Dr. Royzen, kind of catching my breath, saying, but does anybody know this? And he says, that's not the real story. He says, the real story is this other line here. Because of the influx of chronic disease, diabetes, high blood pressure, all of those things, it's going to happen by 2025. Take that in. 2025. We're at 30% of GDP. Okay, Most companies right now spend about $12,000 per employee just on health cost benefits. The employee covers $6,000 on average. Imagine that doubling. Take that to your, your pro forma and see what that does to you. So this is an urgent issue. It's a business issue. And you cannot wait for the federal government. The ACA has failed. Uh, and all this stuff is, is still in flux. And it's a huge battleship that's in flux that nobody knows how it's going to Uh, And we said owners have to take control. Instead of playing defense, we have to begin playing offense. And that's what the new book is about. This is just showing you the ripple effect of chronic disease, Alzheimer's, knee surgery, hip surgery, all these things, obesity. 50% of the population has some form of chronic disease, and it's growing at 7% a year. And it's not slowing down. And so what we found is wellness Promise, wellness program promise is that if we do preventative health, we're going to improve the health of your employees and curb costs. None of that's happened and, it's, and we've had these in place for 60 years. So we're going to disrupt a few people in the book by saying, I won't use the word, uh, but, but the, wellness, the traditional wellness programs are bullshit. They, you just They don't work. About 5% of companies can make it work and I won't go through that. Now, stress, how many have ever felt stress in your life? (laughs) Okay, 76% of people say the workplace is the major cause of stress. 76%. And stress is the primary driver of metabolic syndrome, which leads to chronic disease. And stress is also the primary driver of the five unhealthy behaviors that we cope with that lead to chronic disease. Drinking a little too much, smoking, watching too much TV for distraction, uh, eating the wrong kinds of food and too much. So the lifestyles that we've got are killing us. In fact, Jeffrey Pfeffer's coming out with a book in March, and he helped me with some of this. He just beat me to the market. And his book is called Dying for a Paycheck. Work is the fifth leading cause of death. Work, okay? It is. 130,000 people can be directly attributed to work, okay? So go back and tell your, place, your, your workplace, you guys are killing me. <laughs> so the whole wellness industrial complex we mapped out. I'm not going to go through that. But here's the thing for us. We spend 90% of our lives in some kind of built environment. If you include transportation, it's 96%. This is according to the EPA. So measure the amount of time. Now, everything in here, that light is affecting your hormone system and telling you what time of day it is, your circadian. The air quality, the air, fr- air filtration is affecting your immune system. It's affecting your cognitive capabilities, and Harvard's done a study on that. And yet we spend very little time understanding what this thing is doing to us, and it's the least expensive, most effective return on your dollars for improving wellness. Just create a healthy building. At least create a building that doesn't hurt you. Okay? I think we can do that. Uh, The other thing we haven't looked at, too, is the employee side of the equation. So, whenever we look at facilities on your account, it's a sunk cost. So, what do we do with sunk costs? We reduce the cost. But David Radcliffe at Google said Are we squeezing dollars on the top of the iceberg and losing, are we squeezing pennies there and losing dollars in performance and people engagement and and capability? So the other part, too, is we've gotten the cart before the horse. This was huge. Happiness before health. And we're focusing all on the health side. How many steps are you taking and all of that? Or take a stress management program. But if you hate your boss and you hate your work, it doesn't matter whether you meditate 20 minutes a day. Your life sucks. Okay? So no wellness program is going to help you over that. And if you're lonely... 50% 50% of people report that they're lonely. They don't have two people they can go to and confide in. 50% of CEOs say they're lonely. If you experience loneliness, that's like smoking three packs of cigarettes a day loneliness. So, the question and the thing we can't, how much do you really know about the people you work with at work? Do you really know them, their lives, their stories? And unless you feel safe enough to bring your story to work, you don't come to work with that, okay? So the ladder, the domino effect. Um, Another big part that we found is behavioral economics. How many have been learning about behavioral economics? You have a Nobel Prize winner, by the way, here in Chicago, Richard Thaler. And he wrote a book called Nudge. And what we found, too, is that one of the failures of wellness programs is they try to get individuals to change behavior. Eat better, walk. That doesn't work. If you have kids, you know it doesn't work. You know, you can't get them to do what makes sense in this common sense stuff to do. But you can nudge, you can change social norms. And you can nudge people by choices, environmental choices. So if I have to get up to go and walk all the way across the room to go to the bathroom, there's two things. There's social connection happening and I'm getting up. Just, just five minutes of getting up and walking cleans your system out. So all the, it's called change architecture. Changing behavior by design. This is the book coming out. It's now coming out in April, I think. I heard April. And the <laughs> last chapter goes to the publisher tomorrow. It was, a, it was a hard book to write. It was extremely hard. Because we jumped into other people's backyards. We're telling them that what they're doing isn't working. And uh, and we're telling people what actually did work. And we, Looked at lots of companies that are doing it right and doing it well. And they're starting with culture. They're starting with leadership, engaged leadership that cares. And it's interesting. The things that don't cost a lot are the things that have the biggest effect. So I'm going to pass this on to Brian. And we do expect questions at the end. But as you can see, I didn't let you ask any questions because I wanted to get through this. But remember the questions for the end. Oh, Steve's next. Yep. I'm next.
2: He has no slides. Oh, that's right. I don't have any slides. Right. We'll just leave your
3: book on there. There you go. Just a subtle nudge. It is. It's a nudge. Um, Welcome, everybody. Thanks for uh, inviting me to speak here, Emma. And uh, my involvement in this and my role within the CRE world um, is in a leadership capacity about leadership. Uh, Besides that being my doctorate, it's really what has been uh, kind of my juice for many, many years. And when you talk about leadership, I I think, Rex just talked about how we start with culture, and then we look for engaged leaders. Um, I would flip that from a real technical standpoint. Uh, Ed Schein, who really could be construed as the father of organizational culture, makes a statement that leaders develop cultures and cultures develop the next generation of leaders. Leadership is really what's going to determine where any organization goes, and don't be, uh, let's not narrowly define leadership as the c C-suite. Leadership is found everywhere and anywhere. Uh, The question is what kind of leadership is it gonna be? Now, having said that, I will tell you that the C-suite has an an enormous influence and impact on the type of leadership that's permissible within a given organization or culture. Um, The the problem with organizations today that we're all dealing with, and I often make the statement, I'm a baby boomer and I make the statement that this isn't gonna really change until my generation dies or you know, leaves the workplace. We were, all, we were all raised, you know, 100 years ago when I went to business school, we were raised on this idea that the way you measure corporate performance is through financial metrics. If you can't spreadsheet it, it's not only not valuable, it's not even real. And so we've, we've actually narrowly defined reality within an organizational context as something that can be evidence-based is a great phrase for it. And, and evidence-based usually also translates into spreadsheets. Now I'm highly in favor of evidence. I'm not highly in favor of saying that, that evidence can always be spreadsheeted. And if anybody's got a 17-year-old daughter like I had once upon a time, um, you can, I, can, I, th- I would assume you can agree that you can't spreadsheet human behavior. It's impossible. It's not only impossible to predict, it's impossible to define or describe at at times. And that's true of all of us because we are human and so what we're dealing with are organizations that are stuck in this kind of Weber Taylor scientific uh, machine model of organizations where you have inputs, processes and outputs and you define how our organization is doing by what's the efficiency between inputs and outputs, right? And so, who, where are the people? Well, they're the processes. So, we call them resources and, you know, no slam to anybody who's from the human resource industry, but just think about that. You're all just resources. So is this, so is this, so is your laptop. And so, we treat people because that's the model of organizational behavior. We treat people as the proverbial cog in the machine. Now, this hasn't worked well for the last 20, 25, 30 years. The engagement statistics would bear that out. We've been, I mean, how long has Gallup been dealing with engagement surveys? And what has been the change in level of engagement? Zippo. No impact, and yet, believe me, all of your organizations, if they're of any size, have spent considerable amount of resources in trying to improve employee engagement. But if you've ever taken an engagement survey, I would would actually challenge the survey makers, are you really getting at human happiness? are you really trying to get at the heart of the people who are working there? Because if you ask me whether I like where I work relative to how how far away is the multifunctional device or the water fountain or the the restroom, or do I like the team I work with? with, Well, these are all great questions, but are they really getting at, do you have a happy heart? I mean, are you feeling like really good about yourself being here? Do you think coming to work actually improves the, the way you uh, operate as a human being, does it go outside the four walls of business? Are you a better version of yourself today, having worked in this firm, than you were five years ago when you started? If you ask those questions, how many do you think would, would answer affirmatively, oh, I'm a much better person today for having this job than I was before? They may be richer, they may be more knowledgeable, but are they a better human being? And I think what we've done is we've ennobled, leadership has, they've ennobled this work your butt off, sacrifice family, friends, health, vacation, do you know how many people actually take their vacation time, statistically speaking, across corporate America? How many do you think actually take their full vacation time? It's less than 25%. Why is that? Is that just because everybody loves their work so much? That doesn't play out with your engagement statistics. So how can you be, have only 30% engagement, 20% are toxic, 50% are just showing up, and yet only 25% or less take their vacation time? What's going on there? That's leadership. That's leadership that is promulgating a, a culture, a belief system that you take that vacation, you take your full vacation, it's actually a demerit. We're looking for people who will sacrifice their vacation for the good of the firm. We're looking for people who will, discretionary effort, that's what we want. We want people who will sacrifice everything. You know, it's the old thing, if you're not on your second marriage, you're not gonna be in the C-suite. Forget about it. (laughs) (coughs) So the question really is, can leaders create organizations where people actually would be, if asked, I am a better version of myself today for having worked in this organization. Is that possible? And the answer is definitively yes. But it's also definitively not because you're gonna change the lighting first or you're gonna change your space first or what you're gonna change is your worldview about people and what's going on. And There's some great people that I know will come out in the book, one of them which is Bob Chapman. And a great story about Bob Chapman, CEO of Bayer Waymiller which is a global manufacturing firm. He went to a friend's wedding and he was watching his friend give his daughter's hand to his new son-in-law, and then he watched him give a toast at the reception. And he's sitting there thinking to himself, you know, I know my friend, and I know his daughter, and I've watched him raise her, and I know what her parents are thinking right now. They're thinking, look, this is my precious person. And now I'm giving her hand to you, sir, and I want you to make sure that you continue to help her be the best version of herself, to be a precious person. I want you to take care of her the way I would, because she she's my daughter. And then he had an epiphany. He said, I have 7,000 plus people who work for me and they come to work every day and every one of them is somebody's precious person. What am I doing to make sure that they are the best version of themselves? And he went back and everything was different. It was a game changer. He said, everything changes. And he wrote a great book about Everybody Matters and it talks about why not use a model of family toward your organizational model. And of course, most people, I I mean, even in this room right now, if statistics would bear it out, more than half of you are going, that's never going to work. Oh, my God. Okay, yeah. Do you know my bosses? Do you have any? I-? That's never going to work. But the, the reality is, no, it actually is very effective. There's another company called Tuthill. They, If you look at Tuthill, I go into their website and look at their corporate values, so to speak. And it's something called Compass. I, I challenge you to read Compass and find in there what Tuthill does. There's a little hint in there, but that's about it. If you know what they, what they do, you can kind of pick it out. But if you have no idea what Tuthill does, you're going to read their entire core values and it's phenomenal. And you're not going to, I don't even know what these guys do. Now that, from a branding standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, would be considered, you just failed. But from a performance standpoint, and we've been there, we've interviewed them. If you're around their people, it's unbelievable. This is a place that actually believes they exist not to make industrial pumps, which is what they do. But to make an environment, I know, but to to make an environment where people actually flourish and they actually are better versions of themselves and it spills outside of the business into their homes, their neighborhoods, their communities, and their mission, and again, they make industrial pumps. is to awaken the world. Sounds pretty kind of silly almost, right? But when you listen to the CEO talk about it, no, he's got a very clear eye and a clear vision as to why this is going to work. And that's the point. There is a great proof of concept out there in various places. Another book, Firms of Endearment, you know, read that. The the impact on corporate performance when you actually have the courage to hang in there and actually create a culture as leaders that is about caring for people is off the charts. But it takes time and it takes effort and it's very counterintuitive to the, you know, the typical Weber-Taylor scientific model for organizations. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's, you know, part of this book is a call out to leaders. It's, it's really a clarion call. Like if you really do want to care about people and you want to be somebody who actually goes to work and realizes if you're the CEO, think about this. You're a CEO, you have anywhere between 50 to 50,000 people that you can influence. How many people have that opportunity? If you're a manager and you have two people that you're overseeing. You've got two human beings that you actually can have a tremendous influence on. The real question is, are you of the mind that I want to make them better people? And that's why I'm here. Because if you have that kind of leadership perspective, then this book is actually going to be, I think, not only really helpful, but it's going to inspire you to to move in that direction. As far as future-proofing your careers and our industry and all that stuff. This is where it's going. Uh, humanizing the workplace, you all know this, you sense it, you're in it, is what, what we're all about, and it starts with leadership. So, Brian's gonna talk about how you actually can connect this to something you, know, you can actually do, like pragmatic stuff, so.
2: Sure, and I can't sit between two brainiacs here. Um, first off, I spreadsheet human behavior. <laughs> "I like,
1: just wanted to get out of striking range.
2: Yeah, it's like, well, I'm not going to go with that intro. Um, and nor do I know how to use technology. Um, it's actually cool when you send slides in and they actually match the data that Rex is talking about. That's kind of really nifty. Um, but this is just a, a, a slide showing Gallup being stagnant. And uh, what's exciting is all the hope of everything, because I'm starting to feel that doom and gloom over here. It's with us in this room. I don't know if you know that, but the secret sauce is actually real estate. Of all the things, really, why? It's for everything he just talked about. The impact that workplace has on your psyche and your well-being and your, um, you know, just living the day-to-day is such an impact and who controls that? That was a loaded question, anyone can check? You do! Now, what's actually, uh, you know, you mentioned 30%. Anyone have an idea what the global number is for engagement? 13. 13. So I guess we should be applauding the US. Yay, 30. <laughs> wow. Um, so here's kind of why. Um, here's what we, um, Deborah Moore, it's my boss here. I love her because 55% of my engagement is my relationship with my manager. How is that for brown nosing? Um, (laughs) But we set out on this three years ago to say, you know what? Nobody's measuring the experience in the workplace. So I wanted you to think about something. I think there's been a statement out there that says, hey, um, healthy people will flourish. And Rex flipped that sentence around on me and said, no, 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 flourishing people will be healthy. And when you look at it, I think there's a lot of things we've done around trying to make people healthy. Let's install a fitness center. Let's have healthy food, a yoga room, more daylight, and that's what we measure. We measure the things. Hey, did you like the gym? Hey, maybe I'll track the users against the non-users and maybe if I can get, you know, attrition levels or employee engagement scores, I'll find out something. We're measuring the things. When you say are people flourishing, that will make them healthy. I need to measure flourishing. Well, how in the world do I do that? And that's what we set out to do is, it can be done. And I'll show you a little bit about that, but this is a typical engagement map. If I look at Gallup, Glint, some of these other surveys, and there's a lot of them out there, they're looking at the opportunity employees have at work, the organization they work for, these kind of rewards, benefits, perks that you get, the people you work with, and the actual tasks that you have. And we're thrown out there that the sixth sense is telling me there's a sixth element, and this is your workplace experience. Where do you spend all your waking hours? In the workplace. And I have no clue if that experience is going well. And it's going to kind of blow your mind about the things you have to worry about as I give you some of the evidence of, hey, if somebody can't focus, why is that? And what is the solution? It's not necessarily what you think as you get in. So when we say, hey, we can measure an employee experience, um, this is kind of uh, where our research landed. So not only can we provide a score, but this is how we break an experience down. And this is the epicenter of things. Um, All the attributes. Your cubicle, your conference room, your technology, the commute, all that stuff are things that drive your experience. So think of it as a two-by-two grid. First off on the uh, y-axis you have work-life balance and then on the x-axis it's you the person and then it's you with the group socially interacting. Now what we have a tendency to do is our comfort zone, we focus on work. So for the individual, can I focus? Do I have enough privacy? Can I get my job done? All those things. And then around the team, it's a productive team. Using conference rooms, am I getting things done? All, what have you. And what's missing is life. And we've got data here to kind of showcase how we're missing the, um, what I actually call some easy targets if you focus on them. So for life as a person, hey, Am I renewed and energized and motivated when I come to work? Rather than, can I focus and get my work done? And then for a team, it's those soft things that um, Rex just talked about. It. It's, we call it bond. Um, hey, do I want to grab a beer with these guys after work, or can I can't wait to get out of the conference room with these guys? I mean, do I like the people I actually work with? I wouldn't work there, they hire my type. You know? <laughs> And then there's this thing that popped out in the middle, learn. It's actually kind of a, an element that covers and impacts all of those things. People want to know, and it's not just this development thing. It, learn is, can I find the data? Can I find the report that they tell me? Um, is there actually an orientation program at this company that tells me what the hell I'm supposed to do? How many of you did not go through an orientation program, not on the health benefits and all that, but on your job? How many actually had an orientation program? So there's maybe a dozen in this room. Not many. And actually, in the uh, financial crisis, this is like one of the easy targets that they went after. Well, let's cut the orientation program and we'll put the onus on managers. And guess what happened? <laughs> Nobody got oriented. <laughs> it's like, you're late. This was due last week. I just started this week, I know. So, so this um, organic structure is how we kind of look at experience. So what you see up here, what would typically measure in the past? Like I spent some time analyzing the Leesman index and some of the uh, workplace performance indicators through Gensler and other tools. And these are what I call attributes. And we kind of categorize them. We've got over 75, but they fall in these six buckets. It's your workplace design. It's your technology. It's the amenities and the wellness things that you do. It's how you service the people. It's your location. And then there's this one we call culture um, and policies, so the culture of the company. And what I find interesting, depending on the provider of a service, they're only measuring the things they do. So architects don't necessarily look at operationalizing the things they have and look about services. An FM group isn't necessarily talking about the architectural design. They're focusing on services. But we realize you have to be holistic. And what we do with our process is we actually will score your experience, and then we regress all these against the experience outcomes to find out what's driving that. So we may have 75 things, and it's always a surprise what drives. So an example I showcase is I had one client. um, This was Shake Shack, actually, in New York City. Um, The ability to focus for people was eroding. So we ran our, uh, this is done through an online survey. We ran through, um, and we found focus was the lowest scoring of that box I show you. And then when we regressed all the things, The architects were already trying to solution this, so what do you think happens when people can't focus? You start adding, and they were a total open environment, so you add phone booths, huddle rooms, create privacy. The number one driver was being informed and connected, and we were like, huh? So we supplement that with focus groups, well, what's going on here? Well, they kill their orientation program. Nobody, they have SharePoint, box files, paste it on your hard drive. No one can find anything. What we found is people spend 50% of their time hunting and pecking to find how to do their job every day. What do you think that does for stress levels? You know, the renew score for them was lowest. People are stressed out because they're only working four hours a day when they're by themselves. So the fix isn't more huddle rooms and things. It's like... Give them easy access to information. Teach them how to use the apps. You're not doing that. Now, here's the notion to you guys. You own that. That's the change. We own onboarding and orientation because it's showing up as what's driving the workplace experience. And that's a whole change. There are things that are showing up. Um, LinkedIn has been a great client. They're like, so does workplace experience impact employee engagement? How many think it does? Some people are lifting their hands above their head now. It's really cool. <laughs> I figured the pasta coma had taken effect. Um, they push us and said, well actually I want you to approve that. So we're working with HR and they used the GLINT survey. We're actually regressing these outcomes against their employee engagement. And here's what we found. Like when if I go to these categories, like we found, um, uh, teaming, focus and bond, if you can improve that 10 basis points in our workplace experience, it actually moves employee engagement up one percent. may not seem like a lot, but that's huge. Aon Hewitt just came out with data this year that says for every three basis points, you can improve actually, five basis points, you can improve employee engagement, you get three percent revenue bump, and it works in reverse. I'll take 1%, but the staggering one was renew and the whole well-being has a 2% impact, twice the amount of the others. And when they measured engagement, the things that we found it Drove was pride in your company and would you recommend this to somebody else? All on the workplace experience, we actually could make a physical connection between the two, so that was really cool. So you want to know that it's economic forecast, we've got to give the data, right? So here's the chart right now of our client base last year that went through this. So we're at 16 clients that uh, went through our model, and here are the numbers. And what I find interesting is, um, like you look focus and team, and this is where we spend all our time, designing great spaces, places people want to come and work in, and they're the highest scoring things. I am proud that the highest one is bond. So the companies that we have um, have a great kind of sense of bond amongst them. But what's the laggard here? Renew. Everywhere we go, people are burned out. And it's like, hey, we get things done and we bond as a team and we're really productive despite the company. And what I'm about is let's remove that last tagline (laughs) and then learn. Um, the number one attribute, the lowest scoring attribute of those 75 is being informed and connected. What's going on in the company, our industry, what does the CEO think, what's our mission, vision, how, how do the things that I do make an impact on what we are doing? If people have that human nature, need to actually connect that dot, and when they don't, they struggle. So. Those are kind of the averages. And what's the beautiful is as you get the averages, of those 75 things I just mentioned, uh, not in detail obviously, these are the only ones that drive workplace experience at the time, you know, like this year for this survey. So I can easily go and say, hey, for the team, um, collaborative technology and the suitability, the alignment of the right space types for people are the only two things of the 75 that are driving team success. I can also look at the score, and this one, Learn, was 48. This previous chart on the white box, that's the 10th percentile, 90th, 10th percentile's like a score of 54. I mean, 48. And here it was onboarding and orientation and being informed. We're like, you know, some digital boards just communicating stuff about the company would be really cool, real-time access to info, and have an orientation program. Does that sound real estate? Not offhand. I mean, yeah, I guess you got to buy monitors and put them in or what have you, but you have to own that stuff. If you know what's important, that's what's going to drive the experience. So to me, it's all about how do I stay on top of flourishing people to measure it? So measure the people, their behavior, and are they flourishing? by actually knowing the experience. And what I will tell you is every time we go to a C-suite with a business case based on data on human behavior, it sells. They actually kind of self-admit, yeah, I figured, I knew that was a problem. (laughs) If you go and say, hey, I want to um, introduce a wellness program and put in a gym and this and this, well, how much? Well, $5 million and, oh God, I just don't have it this year. But if you go in and say people's ability to focus and being burnt out in wellness program would actually make that better, and it 'll give you a one percent or two percent bump in your employee engagement they 'll sign up for that every day and that 's what we 're about. We want hard data and analytics on the human side i won 't spreadsheet the human behavior, but i 'm trying <laughs> so um, you know the last thing I kind of was uh, you know thinking about. Um, how do things show up that you would be surprised about? The last one uh, I'll leave you with was um, LinkedIn in be- Beijing decided uh, people were complaining because they had these long commutes and they added showers to their facilities. You know, it's hot, whatever, we're coming in. So they added showers. And then we, they went through and asked people, hey, do you like the showers? And blah, 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 the usual survey stuff. And it came through skyrocketing great. Then we went in and um, ran our, t- our survey, and what was interesting is the users of the showers had a lower focus score than the non-users. Anyone have a clue why that is? I actually talked to a neuroscientist on this. He says, well, it depends on the temperature. I was like, oh. If the shower is too hot, you're training your brain it's ready to go to bed, He goes, this is why we bathe your children at night in a hot bath, you know, get the ADD out of their system. Doctors say if you can't sleep, take a warm bath. If the water's too hot, you're actually shutting them down before they start their day. Make it tepid, you know, cold shower would be best. That'd be cruel. (laughs) And think of that if you're an FM. The fix is the temperature. You thought you had a shower and everyone loved it, but you're actually diminishing focus. Now you know and can actually uh, you know, bring that value to a client and actually watch scores up. So not only can you run this, just like Gallup does it every year, you can run uh, an experience per square foot um, study of how you're doing every year. Implement new programs to solve those things, measure it again. There'll be new things that pop up. So our industry really has a great opportunity here so that by 2025, we're not in this uh, 30% of... G- GDP um, funk, so let's go solve it
0: so,
1: We have about 10 minutes for Q&A and what I would say is that if you have a question wait for the microphone to come Because we want everybody to hear it, but also this is being captured for the podcast uh, So let's start out with questions. Does anybody have any questions? Good, we're finished. <laughs> We've got one right over here, right in the middle, and that was kind of a low hand, but okay. Um,
2: I actually have a question. As you look as you,
1: as you look at this on a global basis, do you see differences uh, that are significant to consider? Um, I can imagine, like in Europe, like their satisfaction due to more vacation days, or you know, in Asia, around you know, more hierarchical, you know. Uh, relationships do you see differences that you can implement between different regions or legislation that needs to change Uh...
3: from a from a leadership standpoint I can tell you that um, if you know anything about Seligman's research there are universal uh, virtues that human beings all resonate to and they're cross-cultural and they go back 5,000 years so in order to get past, I think, what you're referring to, which are very distinct cultural differences, um, you kind of have to get down to the human scale. And what is it that make people tick? And that's where um, you know, the stuff that Brian was showing, to my mind, are, are what you would call proxy variables. You can't measure the human heart in the true sense of the word. You can't measure the human spirit. It's, it's a metaphysical reality. But you can measure what are called proxy variables. And you know that there are certain things that contribute to human flourishing, and you can measure those. Uh, right down to the physiology. So the point of it is that I think you can try to, you know, culturally distinguish what you do from a methodology standpoint, but I would say that the goal should be a universal kind of human and aspirational model than starting out with this notion that, well, no, we're all different. Well, we're really not.
1: So the, um, in general, <clears throat> the the cultures that focus on intrinsic values, community, uh, empowerment, uh, those that focus on e- extrinsic values, they have very low engagement scores. And Brian already said that the global scores are somewhere in the 13% range. Um, and and so there's a lot that has to do with locality. Uh, for example, in Germany, the manufacturing basis is very strong and vibrant. But when you break it down, you look at it, these are small towns, small manufacturers, so there's a heavy community basis to that. Um, So context matters. But the bottom line, what what we're finding and learning is that companies that move, for example, if you have mission, vision, values, tested against Seligman's 24 kind of intrinsic motivators. These are things that have been proven over history, over time. For example, justice, that's an intrinsic motivator. So anything that's an intrinsic motivator is something you want more of, not less of. So we want more justice, right? more integrity. Those are intrinsic motivators. So one of the things we're working with clients on is looking at their mission, vision, values, and see how many of these are kind of extrinsically driven, because if you've got extrinsic values that you're trying to push, you're always going to have to invest management time and energy into making that happen. But if they're intrinsic, if they're just natural things people like to do anyway, then you've got kind of a social norm and cultural thing that'll take over where management has to press it.
2: The only other thing I'd add is what I think shows up more in ours is people want cultural alignment with the culture of the company. So even though there's a national culture kind of differences, um, I find it a bigger driver that people come wanting, expecting a certain culture based on a brand, and when they get there, they expect to see it, feel it, live it. And that actually seems to stand out more than, uh, yeah, there are nuances from you know, one uh, region to another. Great presentation. Um, I liked the th- sound of the metric that one of you came up with that tries to tie effectiveness or happiness or whatever uh, to the workplace. But has anybody been able to come up with a metric about Differing um, office environments and productivity? Well, it's an interesting uh, uh, question because I think if I go back two decades, we spent all our time on the spreadsheet and trying to be the most efficient, on time, budget oriented. And then the Holy Grail came out of how do we measure productivity? Um, and if anyone's ever found it, um, you know, unless you're manufacturing or something, it's a very hard thing in the knowledge worker venue to measure. But what has been proven is productivity definitely is tied to how engaged, how your people show up, have they had enough sleep, those types of things. So this whole kind of shift to well-being and employee engagement, and hence why we're talking about the workplace experience, is finding out, hey, solve that. That's the tip of the iceberg that will actually drive more productive um, and actually a more revenue-driven, cost-efficient company. So it's kind of a shifting paradigm versus we solve the productivity measure.
1: What what we find are the companies that develop their own internal, like Google, for example, they're always experimenting, they're heavy data-driven, but they look for leading indicators. Cummins, they're very, you know, Six Sigma organization, but they tie it to uh, human behavior and performance, and so they measure you know, they continue to experiment and measure and find leading indicators for their organization. So there's nothing out there that's universal, but the really good company, Barry Waymiller, their basic metric is we're going to do the right thing, and then it's up to the leadership to make it work business-wise. That's their metric. If you bring a spreadsheet in to Bob Chapman's meeting, you will be asked to leave. Uh, He will ask first, is it the right thing to do, and then if it is then it's up to us as leaders to figure out how do we make it work for business. And it works. They're a leading manufacturer of packaging in, you know, 12,000 employees globally. Mm-hmm. Um, so leading indicators are really where we need to start moving towards, and every company has to develop their own. Okay, where are you going to put the microphone? You're, you got the microphone. I'm going to let you des- decide. Great
2: job, fellas. This is wonderful. Um- I've got a quick question for you, and you're right, Brian, if not us, who? But it does really begin to continue to evoke that we have to be able to bring in our HR partners, those that own leadership and development, onboarding, all of those things, because we can't do it on our own. And so I think that continues to fuse it. And kind of building upon that point, I'm wondering... Was there any data correlation towards those organizations that offered higher levels of flexibility and choice? Uh, and does that start to also begin to speak to higher levels of well-being? If I have the ability to work from home and avoid commutes or um, have more of that type of choice? Yeah, we actually asked those questions. Do you feel you can work anywhere when you want to? Um, like knowing how important that is to you but then also how effective is the company at allowing you to do it? You know, two different things. The culture may be pervasive that, hey, it's time in your button your in in the seat. Um, I'm glad you asked the question because I look at this as we're not solving a real estate problem, we're solving a business problem. And we always advise our clients, you gotta get HR and IT in here right away because we're touching and asking questions in their area, and HR tends to own a lot of these programs, too. Um, And as soon as they see what it's doing, we just make them part of the process. If you do wait, you don't want to tell HR, hey, we found out things you need to improve. That doesn't usually go over very well. So, um, uh, great point. I always advise clients that, hey, before we venture, let's get them in the room to see what we're about to do, and let's make it a fun ride together and then you're going up together to the C-suite to kind of make recommendations for the company to solve their problems on what's going to make a more engaged workforce uh, and a better workplace for. Them.
0: Uh, hi, thank you for having me. Um, what would you say about a company that in cur- and in terms of culture, a company that encourages you? Um, They have tuition reimbursement. They encourage you to go back to school and further your education. When it comes down to you supplying that schedule to them, oh, well, it's in the best interest of the company. We can't give you those days. You can't have this. That person will feel like they're trapped in that position and being being forced to choose between their furthering their career and their education and being loyal to a disloyal company. Mm
1: -hmm. Sounds like you have a choice you need to make. (laughs) Cheers. I mean, yeah. yeah you, I mean, you, you can rub the cat the opposite way, they don't like that, but, but finding an advocate or a champion in, inside an organization. So if you're young, one of the things I recommend is find an internal mentor and champion that helps you learn how to navigate the political waters. Every company has political waters and knowing how to navigate that is so helpful. And there's typically somebody that you can find that likes somebody who shows initiative, willing to help coach them, and just ask them. And, and it, may, it may not happen in, in that organization, but I usually look for that as a success factor for, for younger employees going up, and we'll keep our fingers crossed.
0: Megan Russells with Powerful Partners. Um, thank you for a great presentation. My question is: based on your findings, is it better for companies to allow employees to work from home or not?
1: Yes. Yes. It, and again, context matters. Mm-hmm. What you know, your business strategy, your culture, uh, the maturity. You know, one one person, uh, Cushman, Randy Thompson is a great friend with Cushman, and he says, It doesn't make any sense to build a self-actualizing work environment if you don't have people who are self-actualized. So maturity of workforce. Here's another interesting thing we found, that these leading-edge companies are finding that they're having to fill the gap of basic life skills. Okay, So they're training basic life skills and soft skills. They have academies and universities because they don't exist. And the schools are not producing those skills anymore. They call them, Now they're calling basic character skills 21st century skills. Uh, we used to call them character. Um, but I, I did a book on education, and we, it just blew my mind. Uh, only 5% of schools are producing kids that have life skills and soft skills to make it. Uh, so if you've got a company, you've probably found that some people don't have basic how to budget. How to deal with conflict, you know, how to manage time, how to go bed at night, how to not watch TV, and you know, all these basic things. Cummins teaches it. So we're fun- I'm going to an academy for Next Jump to see their, their academy to watch them teach basic life skills. Now some of them call some of the companies are call them leadership skills, but they're basic life skills. We have time for one more.
2: Uh, I was just gonna okay. add, just to shift it on you, I think it's the wrong question. And what I mean by that is, if a company solves your workplace experience, meaning I have access to data anytime, anywhere, I am 100% productive, I am fully engaged in a meeting, whether I'm at home, at the airport, or in the office, solve all that and create a great experience, it doesn't really matter where people work. But if you just target I gotta work from home and I'm gonna say you can work from home, what I see is companies don't solve all those other things and then all of a sudden everyone's struggling, they're more stressed out, and, and, and now you've actually created a problem. Um, so it's like, hey, worry, worry about solving the experience, and the rest will flow.
1: So let's ask a Cubs or Bears or Blackhawks question. Go um, ahead. Sorry from New York. Um,
4: first, I'd like to congratulate, First, I'd like to congratulate the uh, Chicago chapter. This is a phenomenal turnout. I've been coming to Chicago meetings for many years, and they used to be one-third of what they are. You know, this is fantastic. Um, my comment, basically, and if you could talk about it, is le- leadership. Where are they coming from? Because here are the issues. On a political stream, you see we, we ran two 70-year-olds for president. Okay, so where are the leaders are? Yeah, I don't want to go there today. But, uh, but, but it's no different in the corporate real estate world, because when I was coming up through the ranks, the I was, I was expecting at Citibank, my, my first job, or at McGraw my second job, my boss would retire at 62, 63. Then all of a sudden, now people aren't retiring, myself included, not retiring, hanging on. So we're a young, and I think there's a whole generation missing in our, in our industry. Mm-hmm. We've missed an entire generation by not promoting them, by not mentoring them, and everything else. But where, where, are they, where, where can they jump in, where are they coming from, and how do they get themselves uh,
1: make themselves viable? That's a huge it's question. And I'm not sure. Yeah. yeah, but you're right. We have, if you go through federal government, if you go through corporate real estate, there's going to be a huge exodus, and not a lot of people around to backfill. So backfill is huge, uh, and maybe that's a new book, but a uh, research project. But you're right. I mean, uh, we see some companies doing extremely well in terms of turning over and letting people experience. But most companies are not. And so keep that in mind, that, that's a challenge. Uh,
3: I, I would add, too, that I'm not sure it's a lack of leadership in terms of a pool of prospective leaders out there. I think it's, it's a lack of organizations that can promulgate you know, human leadership in, in the right way. In other words, we have organizations that are actually perfectly organized, and they are, they are exactly the way they need to be to turn out what they turn out right? And so that's always true. So the question is, are you willing to change your organization to actually turn out great leaders? If you are, you're going to find that there's plenty of leaders out there who will, who right. will resonate to that. So, With that, we'll uh, thank our speakers, Rex, Brian, and Steve. <laughs> Uh, I'll also add, I think this is the first program I've ever been at where nobody left during the program. So thank, thank you all for coming. See you in February.